Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. My name is Leah M., Recovered Compulsive Overeater, and your moderator for this morning. Today is Sunday, July 2nd, 2023. The share ID numbers for Friday, June 30th are the following. For the 7 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 20,401, that's two zero. And for the 10 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 20,402. That's 20402. This morning, A Vision for You presents Living in the Promises Through Everyday Life. Overeaters Anonymous stands for the proposition that the 12 steps give us freedom from the bondage of our disease and sets us on a new path, clearing the way to the promises of recovery. OA's 12 steps are a group of principles, spiritual in their nature, which if practiced as a way of life, can expel the obsession to compulsively overeat and enable the sufferer to become happily and usefully whole. We submit to a simple process that certainly is not easy, yet it takes us to a place we've never been. The results are disproportionate to our efforts, yet our efforts are absolutely required to sustain and enlarge it. Hence, the big book states, we trudge the road of happy destiny. What does trudge mean? Trudge, to walk slowly with a lot of effort. Those of us who trudge the highs and lows of the road of recovery know that sometimes pain and challenges are a part of life and part of the journey. Trudging is, indeed, the work of a lifetime. The 12 steps of recovery enable us to do things we never could do before. We are able to live and get along with our fellow human beings. We are able to be useful and to live our lives with serenity and peace of mind instead of restlessness, irritation, or discontent. As a result of the application of the 12 steps and a relationship with God, we have a way of deep, lasting personal transformation while living in the promises of recovery through everyday life. Joining us this morning to share her experience about living in the promises is Katie F., a recovered compulsive overeater from Virginia. Katie is a beloved and trusted servant of Overeaters Anonymous and a vision for you, and it's with great appreciation and delight that I welcome her to the line this morning. Good morning, Katie. Good morning, Leah, and thank you for that beautiful introduction. I think everybody always feels like, okay, well, I have nothing to say now because the person who opened 
said uh, what I wanted to say, but obviously that's not what I can do. So uh, let's just uh, pause for a moment and say the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. Thy will, not mine, be done. So I want to start out with um, what it was like because um, as I listen all the time to people on the line and in my daily life, I hear so much uh, that is how I lived for so many years. You know, I never hear someone say, well, I picked up the food on Tuesday because I went through a hard time and that was really, that was just the best thing I did and now I'm great, you know, and for me, when I um, came into these rooms, it was at the end of a year-long binge, and that was in the rooms. I was in the rooms. Um, the first time I came to Overeaters Anonymous is when I was 14 years old in 1975, almost 15, and I thought it was the dumbest thing I'd ever heard. You know, it's not that big a deal. I had 15 pounds to lose. Um, and I just thought it was ridiculous to think that, you know, you needed to worry about, you know, eating a cucumber between meals. And so I left thinking I would never come back. And I proceeded to, uh, that 15 pounds then became 40 pounds. And when I came back to OA in 1981, it was after watching, um, a show where the Quincy show, which people only, you know, over 50 or 60 would even remember. And uh, someone, he was a coroner and this girl had died from anorexia. And so, and they had talked about tops, which totally humiliates you. And then they also talked about Overeaters Anonymous. And so I, for whatever reason, I'm now 21 years old, uh, thought I needed to sneak off to my bedroom, get out the phone book, and look up Overeaters Anonymous. And I found that someone very nice answered the phone when I called and um, I found a meeting, didn't tell anyone that I was going to the meeting. And I asked someone to be my sponsor. I called her every day for 21 days and then she said, okay, you don't have to call me anymore. And I thought, oh, okay, I can sponsor myself now. And, you know, we sort of did a little bit of step work. I read a little bit of the big book. I read the 12 and 12 here and there. And I thought I should be able to handle it now. And, of course, I couldn't. But I just fumbled along in a way with this uh, very loose structure and, and then sometimes very strict structure and all these just up and down all over the place um, for the next six years. And I um, would tell myself that I was abstinent. Uh, I would tell myself that I was doing things not because I, you know, was escaping, not eating to escape, not, you know, making dinner plans out instead of eating my planned abstinent food, not to, you know, get some secret pleasure out of the food, but just because, you know, that's what life had brought me. And so it was always, it was always my external circumstances that quote made me eat. And so I, I clearly had not hit bottom. I hadn't hit the bottom I needed to hit because as people talk about on 
this meeting, there is no bottom. <laughs> like the bottom, it's an abyss. And that's what I found out um, when I went back to full-blown binging uh, five years into this program and could not stop. I could not, I, I would just pretend that I had some abstinence, but it never was really putting the food down. And it was mostly insane binging like I had never done before. And that was in 1987, and I remember it like it was yesterday. Um, thank God it, it wasn't yesterday. And so my life in that last year became very much like what it talks about on page 52 in The Bedevilments. We were having trouble with personal relationships. I could not get along with this one guy that I worked with and to the point where my boss talked to me about how I needed to get over myself and not be so rude to him. Um, we couldn't control our emotional nature. You know, I lashed out at people. I just, there was no pausing when agitated or doubtful that becomes and has become my way of life now for the most part. <laughs> I'd love to say I'm perfect that everything in my life, you know, now that I'm abstinent, every, you know, no bad things happen to me. And I just go along glibly in this um, contented then state of abstinence, but I've lived 35 years of contented abstinence in the midst of so many things. I've spent so many hours this week preparing for this, and it's like, it's just an endless stream of things that have gone on in my life, and yet the underlying thread, instead of the underlying thread being the bedevilment, is an underlying thread of God carrying me, God carrying me through to the other side when I thought there was no way I could endure the pain of whatever was going on. From a flat tire to my mother dying. You know, there's, there's just, and everything in between. You know, everyday life is not easy. Because for me, I picked up the food at such a young age I numbed my brain with food for the first 27 years of my life where I just, you know, was distracted by food. And I didn't understand that I am abnormally uh, wired. I am not like the average, you know, temperate drinker or temperate eater. I'm not just overweight because I live in America where we have an abundance of food where the food portions are ridiculous for what a person needs. That's not why I was fat. I was fat because when everyone else went home, everybody else went to bed, everybody else was stuffed, I waited a few minutes so I wasn't quite so stuffed and ate some more. And, you know, that is not what uh, every person who's overweight does. And I did not understand that. Um, so... I couldn't control my emotional nature. I was prey to misery and depression. I couldn't make a living. My best thinking in disease had me take a job that required me to work 70 hours a week just so I could make my bills, just so I could afford to live then from paycheck to paycheck. I had no benefits. I had no holiday pay. I had no vacation pay. And I, prior to that, I had a career with very good Benefits and you know twice as much income so that was my my best feeling my best thinking I had a feeling of uselessness 
we were full of fear. We were unhappy. Couldn't seem to be of real help to other people. And that were the bedevilments that I was living in when I put the food down. And I would love to say, you know, I've never gone back to those things. But the reality is that they can slip in. And that's why, you know, we continue to trudge, as uh, Leah just described, which is intentional movement, <laughs> intentional movement in the right direction. You know, I don't, um, don't rest my laurels. You know, it talks about us, uh, you know, we can't do that. And yet there were times because, you know, I, I was, I think I was scared into recovery. <laughs> I was scared of my sponsor. I was scared of myself. I was scared of the food. And God carried me through the first um, many months of my recovery to the point where I lost 70 pounds in nine months. And I've never looked back. That was, uh, I reached that goal in uh, August of 1988, 1988. And I weigh uh, two and a half pounds less than I did that day when I weighed myself. And I'm now almost 63 years old. So, you know, I got through menopause, I got through childbearing, I got through uh, toddlers, I got through teenagers, I now have young adults, I'm now a grandmother. And as I mentioned, you know, I've gone through many um, periods of grief. Uh, The first one was my stepsister, or not the first one, but the one that comes to mind um, is my stepsister who was diagnosed HIV um, in 19, in the fall of 1990. And she passed away in the fall of 1992. So back then, they didn't have the things they have now. I don't know why, but whatever. She was 29 years old, and she died of AIDS. And I was living in Colorado um, by myself for the first time in my life. Uh, I had a large community of program people. I had a large community of people of faith, but there were many hours of my day where I was alone. And as God would have it, during that time period, I was also starting to really feel feelings, like not just anger, which is the only feeling I could ever identify prior to um, coming to program. I couldn't, I didn't have a rainbow of feelings. I just was angry. And, you know, I would burst into tears for a couple of seconds and that would be it. Well, at this point, you know, this is 1992, so I've been absent for five, almost five years. I was just crying like a, I don't know what a normal amount of crying is, but I would cry like I would call like a normal person. And so I was doing all of that crying by myself in my apartment. And, you know, when I came in, I, that was like one of the things I feared, you know, ever living alone. Like, how could I be alone with food? How could I be alone in my own apartment? How could I go to the store and just buy whatever I want? And it's, you know, that kind of insane thinking has nothing to do with recovery. Um, so I could just, you know, I could spend the whole time talking about suddenly realizing that God is doing for us what we can never do for ourselves, because that has been what my life has been like, you know, I look back on, you know, wake up one day 
and say, that was a really hard day yesterday and I'm waking up abstinent again. And I think God is carrying me through. Um, my whole attitude and outlook upon life has changed. You know, I, I don't, um, but I, you know, all of these, when I say it, it's like, yeah, but what about, you know, last week when you got mad at your husband because he didn't tell you when he was going to be home? You know, it's, it's not like this is just seamless, perfect. But my default is now to look to the positive and to look to what does God want me to do next? You know, because during that two years that my sister was sick, um, you know, I was reaching out to others. I was sponsoring. I was, you know, working. I was doing all the things that this program requires us to do and just putting one foot in front of the other. And God carried me through that. And I would say the biggest thing for the new freedom and the new happiness is the neutrality with food which I didn't even think was a thing. Like I had no idea that that mind chatter in my head that had been in my head my entire life, as far as I knew, even when I'd been absent before, I was before uh, October 7th, 1987, I still always had that, you know, what people call monkey chatter. Just maybe I'll eat this. Maybe I'll eat now. Maybe I'll eat later. Maybe I'll have two of those. Maybe I'll have one. Maybe I'll have 12. Maybe I won't ever eat again. You know, just all that stuff I just thought was just going to always be a part of my life. Like I didn't, I had no clue that I could be free from that. And I am free from that today. I don't debate what I'm going to eat. I, I write my food down every day. I do weigh and measure because I am a critical level food addict. I will worm my way in to find uh, a devious way to do something and that monkey chatter that I do not want. I don't want to be debating about whether I'll have this abstinent food or that abstinent food. And I, I don't do that. I need a high level of accountability and that's what works for me. Um, and I'm so grateful that there are people who are willing to listen to my stuff and to hold me accountable. Um, so the feeling of uselessness and self-pity has definitely disappeared. Does it come back now and then? Yes. Yes, it does. But for the most part, I feel very useful, you know, even if it's just starting the recording on a vision for you, I can oh, answering the phone when my sponsees call, you know, calling my sponsor on time. All these things give me a feeling of usefulness and then I'm able to feel useful and be useful in my life. Um, I have a boss that people have heard me talk about for literally 29 years. Now, you know, you might think, okay, where's the sanity in that? Why didn't you quit at six months when he drove you crazy? And for whatever reason, that has not been my story. Um, I was a stay-at-home mom for seven years which is, you know, I could go on and on about that too. Um, but <laughs> this man has helped me to see my character defects over and over and over again and new character <laughs> defects that I didn't even know I had, you know. So maybe I'm a slow learner. That's why I'm here so long. But I don't think so. I think, you know, Bill and Bob, they meant for this to be a way of life. They meant for this to be for the rest of your life. 
And as God would have it, I have a sponsee who's 87 years old. She's been calling me for 22 years. And, you know, the older I get, the more I realize that God put her in my life for the very purpose of showing me that this is the path I need to be on too, because I've taken, I've been with her through very difficult times and she needed a program. She needed a program when she was 72 and her husband died. She needed a program when she was, you know, 79 and having a heart pacemaker put in, or I, you know, I'm making up these dates, but um, you know, just all these different things that you go through when you're older you know, I'm going to need, I'm going to need people too. I'm going to need the newcomer and I'm going to need my sponsor. And that is how um, I do not uh, fall back into the bedevilment because I have lost interest in selfish things and I'm gaining interest in other people. You know, I, I can't tell you the number of times the phone rings and I don't get a ton of calls. I mean, I am not someone who gets has 40 messages that I can't return. I do not get a ton of calls, but I do get calls. And, you know, I could be in the middle of, you know, frustration that my husband is not coming in for dinner or, you know, my daughter won't respond to my text or just any number of things that could be going on in my uh, life. And someone will call and I'll think, I don't want to talk to them. And then I talk to them and I've completely forget about whatever it was I was annoyed with. And, um, you know, I, I would not have that if I picked up the food. Because when I picked up the food, then all my focus went back to that. I was just in this vicious cycle of losing weight, gaining weight, thinking about losing weight, thinking about eating, and on and on for basically 18 years before I got abstinent. And you know, I'm only 62 and 11, 12, so I'll be 63 at the end of this month. And there's still people coming into the, these rooms and putting down the food for the first time or for the hundredth time, but hopefully the last time. And I am just shaking my head. Why is that not me? You know, I don't, I don't know. I can't tell you except that I have lived this program and that these promises because of staying connected to my higher power have come true in my life. You know, there's been some challenges. I, when I got married, um, which is a whole story about how I met my husband, it was only God that I ended up moving back to Virginia from Colorado when I did lived where I did connected to a program friend for this particular window of time. Like, Everything had to come together perfectly in order that I ever would have met my husband. And, and it did, you know, and it wasn't me, you know, conniving and manipulating anything. It was just, it happened. And, but he had a two-year-old and a four-year-old. And those two-year-old and four-year-old came from an ex-wife who planned to ruin his life and, when that was not successful, she wanted to ruin both of our lives and make us miserable. And I let her, I, you know, I let that in. I let that be very challenging. Not on, you know, I didn't know how to do it. Like I am so realizing um, 
we will intuitively know how to handle situations with juice tobacculus. Well, we don't intuitively know how to handle situations we've never been through. And I've been through a lot of firsts, you know, being a mother, being a stepmother, uh, having an ex-wife to deal with, um, having a husband, having a dog, you know, all these of my own and all these things, you know, I've had to learn how to, how to do it. And then, yes, I learned from my own mistakes or my own um, successes. And then I can look back on my own experience. You know, this morning I was uh, literally shaking like a leaf. I almost threw up um, just worried about, I don't know what, you know, like I just can't do this. I can't talk. I'm going to make no sense. No one's going to listen to me or not listen to me, but you know, I'm not going to be helpful at all. Just all this, you know, few minutes of, craziness. And I just kept putting one foot in front of the other, getting ready, praying. And the uh, experiences that came to mind are ones from the last few years, where uh, around my 60th birthday, I jumped out of an airplane. And I'm the kid, I'm the one who, when I was a kid, tried to jump out of a ride because I was so scared. Or when we took our kids to King's Dominion, Sometimes we waited an hour in line and I walked through and to the platform on the other side of the ride because I decided I wasn't going to ride it because I was too scared. And, and here I am up in the air, you know, 14,000 feet or whatever it was, just <laughs> jumping out of an airplane. And so I thought this morning, if I can do that, I can do this. I can speak for 45 minutes and answer some questions. And my only aim is to please God and to carry a message of hope for people who have been chronic relapsers because that's what I was for six years. I know that doesn't sound very long to some people, but it may sound long to someone. And you know that the food got worse. It did not get easier. It is not like when I went back to really binging, it wasn't as bad as it had been before. It was exponentially worse. And I know now that it could be even more. I have probably $100,000 worth of credit card availability. I didn't have money back then. I had to steal food from my employer. I have, you know, a husband who loves me, who would love me even if I gained 100 pounds. But that's not what it's all about. It's not about me pushing the envelope and seeing what I can get away with today. Today, my higher power wants me to dive in deeper. It's always about diving in deeper. And, you know, these sponsees teach us things. And I had a sponsee, I have a sponsee who was talking about her meditation. And I said, you know, well, what do you use? What do you use? And she told me. And so I had also been told by my chiropractor, you know, you really are kind of in this fight or flight mode half all the time. You don't relax. And, you know, I pray and I, you know, felt like I was meditating, but I really wasn't. So here, you know, two weeks ago, three weeks, I don't know when it was, I started using this meditation app. So that's what I, I used before I got started speaking this morning. And, you know, that is the kind of thing that God does for me because, 
I am not living in the bedevilments today because I've not, you know, X'd out everyone in my life. And now, you know, if I try to call them, you know, I'm worried they'll hang up on me. You know, um, <clears throat> so that's how my whole attitude and outlook upon life has changed. But I'm willing to learn from a sponsee with three months of abstinence about a meditation practice. You know, I'm not this, I don't see myself as this know-it-all person. I may sound like it sometimes, (laughs) but I don't mean to. And I don't think it. I think I'm the least likely person to have have 35 years of recovery. Um, And I believe that God uses all of us to carry a message. Um, So some of the other things I've gone through, uh, well, being a stay-at-home mom, I, you know, that was another fear of mine is, you know, I, when I went to my first OA meetings in those first six years, you know, I was in my early twenties and there were housewives there who, you know, talked about pulling, drawing the blinds and binging all day and, you know, watching TV. And so even though I've been abstinent for seven years, when I became a stay home mom, it still was scary, you know, okay, how can I do this? And, But the miracle is that food was not on my mind. It's not like I opened up the cabinets and and thought, okay, well, maybe I'll try to have this today and nothing will happen. No, it was the furthest thing from my my mind. It's been the furthest thing from my mind since day one. And I don't know why, but except for working this program, except for surrendering and believing that I truly am a compulsive overeater of the hopeless variety and that I cannot rest on my laurels and think that, um, that I'm immune, you know, that I'm immune and that somehow I can just sort of slide back into some of my old behavior and it's not going to have any effect on me. And I'm not talking about weight. I mean, that's a bonus. It's wonderful. I can wear the same clothes year after year. I, you know, it's taking me (laughs) decades to learn how to shop. I still have a tendency to want to just buy something because it fits me and don't even, you know, have a voice on, do I really like it? Do I like the way it feels? You know, I'm still learning that all these years later because I was just so ingrained in stuffing into my clothes and just, like, whatever, you know, just get out the door. Don't, it's, at least you can put it on. Um, and I don't have to live that way today. I don't have to think about whether my clothes are going to fit. But that doesn't, that doesn't fix every problem in my life. You know, I, um, I was a stay-at-home mom and had these two young, also had, so I had my baby because I got pregnant on my honeymoon. I had a baby nine months later. And, um, and then I had then a three and five-year-old. So the five-year-old was in kindergarten when I became a stay-at-home mom, but I still had the three-year-old and I didn't know how to, and my baby, and I didn't know how to be a mother. You know, I mean, there's things now that it's like, yeah, I, I still can remember things I did. And it was like, why was I so tight about that? But, you know, I still a work in progress, just constantly a work in progress but not a train wreck. And that is what, you know, this is talking about. Um, I think the biggest 
thing that has changed in my life is uh, over the last probably 10 years is that I have learned how to pause when agitated or doubtful um, and take the next right thought or action. I don't do that every time. I had to apologize to my sister two weeks ago. I have to apologize to my husband sometimes. I have to, you know, apologize to sponsees sometimes. I mean, it's not, it's not this perfect life, but I do um, think that God has given me that ability on number, so many occasions where I can, um, where I'm able to pause and not say the first thing that comes to my mind. Um, I learned when I was uh, 45, I think, that um, I had ADHD. Um, my son was diagnosed with it, and that I, as we were going through that process, like everything they were saying, I was like, well, I'm like that. Well, I'm like that. Well, I'm like that. And so I went on medication, and then I suddenly really didn't feel like eating at all. I thought, <laughs> Maybe I've just been making too big a deal out of this. Maybe I'm not even a compulsive overeater. Maybe, you know, I just have ADHD and I'll take this medicine and I'll never have to worry about eating again. And that's about as long as that thought lasted because I knew from working this program that that was insane thinking. And, you know, God has given me, you know, what um, was my MO before has, has changed. It has shifted that that is not how I think. Um, and the promise, no matter how far down the scale we have gone, we will see how our experience can benefit others. You know, losing 70 pounds now doesn't sound like that big a deal. Like people now, 35 years later, are much bigger than they were um, back in 1987. And so many people in these rooms, you know, have lost 100 or more, or 500 pounds, and, you know, but back then, that was, that was a lot, and, you know, I have a message for those who have 70 or less pounds to lose, or 70 or more pounds to lose, it doesn't matter, I don't have to go back and see how bad I could be, because for me, I was suicidal at that weight, and I, not so much that weight, but just the insanity of how I was eating was making me want to kill myself. And I've studied personalities now in, you know, in my life. And I have the kind of personality of a perfectionist, which I used to think was um, a good thing. And now I realize it's not. And, you know, so it's like no wonder it was just unacceptable for me to be so out of control and why it made me so crazy and I could not stand it. Um, But my uh, MO for how to handle the fact that I couldn't stand it was to eat some more, drink some more, smoke some pot, you know, try some Coke, uh, just all these very negative, you know, start smoking again. I mean, just all this negative, negative stuff that I did to myself to combat the fact that I hated myself. And, you know, I don't have to do that today. I don't have to go back and see how bad it would be, how bad I could be, because I am living in these solutions. I, you know, I have a responsibility uh, to call into this meeting every morning and start the recording. You know, it's not very a big deal, but 
you know, one day, not that long ago, I had my little timer went off and then I got distracted by something because I'm not taking ADHD medicine anymore. I only did that for five years. And um, I realized like, oh my gosh, it's 7.02. <laughs> and thank God someone else, you know, started the recording. But I am not perfect. But God, you know, gives me the ability to laugh at myself when I make mistakes today. And that's how I have survived working for this man who is I, OCD and, you know, will cannot help himself from making a comment about every mistake I make. He cannot help himself. And, you know, for years, I would just grit my teeth and want to slam the phone down when I listened to his messages. And, you know, then it got better. Then my sponsor taught me to just leave his comments on the, my desk, you know, just leave them there. And we worked with um, some other really uh, challenging, he's an attorney, worked with some other really challenging attorneys. And it was just painful. It was just so hard. But, you know, I just kept uh, doing the right next thing, you know, not trying to figure out God's next move. Instead, I did the next right thing that I need to do in my life. And there's always something to do. You know, I have a plan after this meeting. I'm going to go somewhere. I'm going to go somewhere else after that. You know, I, I don't, my life is so full today that I don't have time to wallow in self-pity because I choose to wallow in the grace of God. I choose to practice breathing techniques, which is something very new for me. I choose to uh, make a phone call and talk to other fellows, especially people who I know are having a hard time. You know, they may not, um, but then there's, you know, scores of people that I've been in touch with in my life in recovery that never answer my call, you know, that I've had to let go of, that they just, you know, not like a sponsee letting go, but just like, okay, they're, they're gone. They're out of my life. And, you know, that's painful because I'm fully awake. You know, and I want, I have a message to carry and I want to be helpful, but, you know, I can't be helpful to everyone if they are not interested. And, you know, that's where we will comprehend the word serenity and we will know peace because I can be at peace in the midst of chaos. I can be at peace now when my boss is leaving me message after message after message because that's the way he communicates. He leaves me voicemails, even though his office is right next to my desk. Um, And just be like, okay, 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 I understand. Yes, okay, I'll do it that way. Okay, sure. You know, and it's not because I got older, because I have people in my life who got older, and they are not better. (laughs) Age does not mean you become this nice person. And you know, it doesn't mean that you mature. It doesn't mean that you accept your past. You know, I, um, the promise, we will not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. You know, I have, my parents got divorced when I was eight. And my dad, I'm the youngest of four girls. And my dad got remarried. And this was in 1968, before they had, you know, specific custody schedules, and all that kind of stuff. Like I absolutely 
even now, cannot remember one friend who had divorced parents when I was growing up. So it was very shameful and embarrassing and not one, I don't remember a single adult saying, oh, Katie, how do you feel about the fact that you never see your dad anymore? You know, no one ever. It's like, it just, (laughs) I was just supposed to suck it up. And, you know, my way of sucking it up was to eat all the brownies and to eat, you know, everything in sight and just stuff down my feelings and never really acknowledge them. Well, he went on to have to get married and have three more kids. And I enjoyed those kids. Um, The third one wasn't born until I was 22 years old. So uh, that was the other two were born when I was like 10 and 11. And um, so I really enjoyed seeing them, but we just, it just was not this pattern of seeing them every month or every two weeks or anything. I saw them literally once or twice a year. And I lived in Fairfax, Virginia, which is 17, maybe not even 17 miles from where they lived. And they lived in Washington, D.C. until I was in high school. Then they moved to Ocean City, Maryland. And I never spent the night with them, nothing. And this past year, last year, um, and my father died suddenly in 2004 of a heart attack. And that brought up, you know, tons of feelings that I didn't know were there. Um, And I had to power through, not, I didn't have to power through. God carried me through that time. And in that, I learned a lot of things about my character defects, about my ability to forgive. And, you know, I can recall how I felt because I didn't pick up the food to numb those feelings. And, um, and then my one, the, the kids that were closest to my age, one lived in California and one lives in, still lives in California and one lives in Florida and I'm in Virginia. Their mother's in Maryland and the youngest brother is in Maryland um, near the mother. And I had not seen any of them. Um, I hadn't seen any of them till 2017. I saw the sister when I went to the OA birthday um, in January of 2017. Then I saw her again in January of 20 when I was at the OA birthday And last year, um, we went to Florida, and my husband really encouraged me to get in touch with the brother who lives there. And he drove two and a half hours to have dinner with us. When the waitress came around for the second time to take our order, he said, oh, you're you're not going to turn this table over. Like, just, we're going to be here a while. And um, we were there for two and a half hours, and he and his wife, were going on an RV trip and they came to Virginia last year and saw us and saw my other three sisters. And yesterday, well, Friday, and then they spent the night, they came again. And my sister from California also came. And that would not be possible without this recovery because I would have burned those bridges. Um, there was one point with my dad that I really told him off because I was living in Hawaii and I came home for Christmas and he didn't, wasn't going to come from ocean city to where I was in Fairfax, which is like a four hour drive. And I just blasted him. And I was so proud of myself that I stood up for myself. That was, that was the kind of recovery I had 
prior to uh, truly putting down the food and working the steps is, you know, I got this voice. I thought I was so, it was so great that I got a voice. It's like, no, that wasn't great. And, um, I, you know, I don't remember if I ever actually apologized for that. Um, but I do know that I repaired that relationship. Um, and I had not, I had only seen, I hadn't seen him for a year and a half before he died, but I had seen him way more than my other sisters who did not work a program and come to peace with, with all of this. And, um, you know, so that's how I can not regret the past that I can, you know, accept the past. I can accept the past. I can accept that my parents did the best they could. You know, do I like it? Does it make sense? Do I get even more confused by their thinking the longer I'm a parent? Yes, I do. But then I go back to the acceptance of it was a different time. It's a different era. My dad was an only child. His parents divorced when he was a baby. Um, And his grandparents were divorced, which is just unheard of. My parents were, my parents, my mother's parents were divorced. So, you know, it's like, yeah, none of them had any idea the value of parents and that no one can take their place and good, bad, or ugly, you need to be in touch with both parents. And I can accept that today. You know, I can't change that. I cannot change the past. I can't say, well, what if this, or what if that, or why not this, or why not that? It just, it's just a waste of time. And I'm able to live in this promise that um, I will not regret it, that I don't have to regret the past. And I have a new freedom and a new happiness. Um, let's see, what other one have I not talked about? Um, fear of people and of economic insecurity will leave us. Well, you know, that could be a very long <laughs> talk, but, you know, when I uh, moved to Colorado, I moved there as a missionary and I lived on support. So I was living on $500 a month and, um, that was very scary, but God continually blessed me through that time, and I was able to, you know, live with very little, and that was very helpful because then when at, you know, on my honeymoon, I got pregnant, and then we would have three children, um, I wanted to be a stay-at-home mom, and we, you know, didn't have years to save money for that. We didn't have, you know, any time whatsoever And I was able to say, I got through it. I got through it then. I'll get through it now. And I I never thought I would, you know, I didn't have any plans of going back to work right away. I mean, whatever. I didn't know what I was going to do. I did have part-time things. And, um, you know, instead, God has truly blessed me with, you know, good income. And for us, you know, it's enough for us. We're happy. We're content um, because of these promises that, economic insecurity will, you know, fear of, how to go again? Sorry. Um, anyway, economic insecurity will leave us. Yes, I do not have that fear today. Now it's a new thing because people around me are retiring. So it's like, okay, wait a minute. I don't have $2 million in retirement funds. What am I going to do? How am I going to live? We're never going to be able to do this and that. And then, you know, when I start into that 
kind of thinking, I'm able to look back on my own experiences and say, how many times has I will never come true for me? And it's like, never. <laughs> you know, the things that I fear do not happen. Um, I have learned that living in today is a gift. You know, it's a present. It is the present. And that I don't have to worry about the future. I don't have to worry about, you know, some arbitrary thing that might happen, you know, because I have all of these experiences that have shown me that no matter what happens, God's going to be with me. And I wanted to end with um, the read, a reading from uh, the 12 and 12 that um, I just really love. Um, that people read at, at their anniversary sometimes. Now comes the biggest question yet. What about the practice of these principles in all our affairs? Can we love the whole pattern of living as eagerly as we do the small segment of it we discover when we try to help other alcoholics achieve sobriety? Can we bring the same spirit of love and tolerance into our sometimes deranged family lives that we bring to our OA group? Can we have the same kind of confidence and faith in these people who have been infected and sometimes crippled by our own illness that we have in our sponsors? Can we actually carry the AA spirit into our daily work? Can we meet our newly recognized responsibilities to the world at large? And can we bring new purpose and devotion to the religion of our choice? Can we find a new joy of living and trying to do something about all these things? Furthermore, how should we come to terms with seeming failure or success? Can we now accept and adjust to either without despair or pride? Can we accept poverty, sickness, loneliness, and bereavement with courage and serenity? Can we steadfastly content ourselves with the humbler, yet sometimes more durable satisfactions when the brighter, more glittering achievements are denied us? The AA answer to these questions about living is yes. All of these things are possible. We know this because we see monotony, pain, even calamity turn to good news by those who keep on trying to practice AA's 12 steps. And if these are facts of life for the many alcoholics who have recovered in AA, they can become the fact of life for many more. That will pass. Oh, thank you, Katie, for this inspiring and powerful presentation on living life in the promises of recovery truly powerful yes all these things are possible you made that clear such beautiful testimony as to how the program of recovery enables us to live life on life's terms and you have elaborated on that beautifully thank you today's share id 20405 that's 20405 Katie's contact information will be given at the conclusion of this recording, so please stay tuned for that. And we will now transition to a question and answer segment. You can pose a question to Katie by pressing star 1 to unmute. I need your name, including the first letter of your last name. Ginger C. Maureen H. Larry K. Jack W. Freya H. Freya H. Okay, I missed one person. I believe <clears throat> first I heard Surrey C, Maureen H, Larry K, Jack W, Freya H. Who did I miss? Susan C came in. Susan C, gotcha, Susan. I'm going to put you 
right after Larry Kay. Ginger C. Ginger C. Ginger C. And, and Ginger C. Okay, excellent. So I've got Surrey C, Maureen H, Larry K, Susan C, Jack W, Freya H, Ginger C. A great list. Let's get started. Go ahead, Surrey. Questions only, please. Thank you. I didn't hear Surrey. It was Ginger. Okay. All right. Ginger, you're up. Thank you for the clarification. Ginger C., why don't you go ahead, followed by Maureen H. Ole, I'm still having trouble with Star One. Thank you so much for your amazing service. And Katie, thank you from the bottom of my heart. This talk was unbelievable this morning. I haven't listened to Sunday for a while, and I just love how higher power, this grace of God, continues to work for all of us. And my true question, I know I'm out of control with food, and I'm the one with 30 years relapsing in LA. And I know I have no choice or control. I am currently in a terrible condition from a horrible accident I had a week ago. I had surgery. I've broken every bone in my right leg. I absolutely will not wait there for a long time. I can't even barely get to the bathroom right now. How would I begin to get to a kitchen and to weigh and measure three meals a day and I just sincerely ask that from the bottom of my heart. Like, how would you do that? I know your practice and how I'm just thinking, God, I got to pray. I would have to ask. And then hopefully angels would fly in and help me because I know my husband would never be able to sustain this for the months that I was in bed and re, uh, recovering from this accident. But again, just huge hugs to you. I love you so much. Thank you. Um, what I would say is, you know, don't think about the long-termness of this situation, but ask him to do it today. Um, because I would imagine your husband wants you to recover almost as much as you do, if not more. And um, you wouldn't, I wouldn't present it in a way of, will you, you know, weigh and measure my food for the next six months or whatever it is, um, because you don't know what angels might God might provide. And, you know, he may learn how to do batch cooking. You may get a kitchen and a refrigerator in your bedroom and a microwave. I mean, you know, you just, there's lots of different things you can do. But my experience with that is that um, my husband, when we were dating, insisted on learning how to weigh and measure my food. And I, you know, it's like, you know, I've watched him like a hawk. Like, no, it has to be, you know, it's not three point or 2.9, 3.0, and, you know, I've got to level that, and, you know, this was 35 years ago. We didn't weigh everything the way I do today, and and then I got pregnant on my honeymoon and was completely nauseated and really needed to eat my breakfast before I ever got out of bed, and so because I had allowed him to do that, he knew how to do it, and he did do it willingly, and so, you know, I just would... um just start with today. Just not, you know, like I said, don't tell them, you know, you need to do this forever. And, you know, I know you have kids who knows if they'll show up. You, there's other fellows in Colorado and, you know, you just don't know what God's going to do, but just putting the food down is the most important thing for today is put that food down and get the, the right food you need. 
and God will take care of the rest. That's what I got. Thank you, Ginger C. Maureen H., your turn. Yes, this is Maureen H. Um, I have two questions, basically. Do you weigh and measure your food without exception at all restaurants and all the time? And um, do you have to, do you call your food in to a sponsor? Because I come from the morbid obesity type and um, have, you know, 150 or 60 pounds to lose, and I've already lost 100. But I don't feel like I'm getting any kind of step, um, you know, step work from uh, from my sponsor, just the food. So what if that I'll pass and listen to Yes, well, um, so yes, I do weigh and measure um, in restaurants. There have been a handful of times in very extenuating circumstances that I didn't with the guidance of my sponsor. Um, you know, there's certain things that I will just, I, I have at times just eaten what I was served, but um, not like lasagna or something. But um Anyway, yeah, I do, and I yes, I do call my food in every day, but we are continually working on step work. Um, you know, if I wasn't continuing to look at myself, I would just slide right back into the bedevilment with my finger pointing at you of why are you doing that to ruin my day instead of why am I acting like they're crazy when I did the same thing yesterday, which is more what I do now. Next. Thank you, Maureen, for your question. Larry Kay, good morning. Good morning, Leah. Thanks so much for your service. And Katie, you just you're such a steady. I'm glad you didn't throw up this morning and didn't you weren't prevented from getting the stock. So thank you for that uh, and for your honesty. Um, so to my question, um, you know, you've been around a little bit, as you indicated, and I've seen you around and. Um, my question is, you know, um, in that period of time, not only your personal experience, but just observing others too, if you could identify, if, if two or three things come to mind, Katie, what is it that, why um, are people not recovering to the extent where that obsession is lifted? Just from your observation and from the big book standpoint, I don't know if that makes sense, but if you have some opinion about that. Well, my experience with that has been that if I talk to people who are in relapse or who have picked up the, you know, whatever, it, what you mean, you know, they're in relapse, not staying abstinent, there's always something they're not doing. There's always something they have stopped doing. And you don't hear that initially. <laughs> like they'll say, oh, you know, my, I lost my job and, you know, blah, blah. And then it's like, Okay, then they'll say, well, I stopped praying and meditating. I stopped connecting with God. I started, you know, not all these things, but different things. I stopped going to meetings. I didn't have any sponsees. I didn't, um, I stopped weighing and measuring. You know, not everyone has to weigh and measure, but if you need to weigh and measure, you need to weigh and measure. And, you know, I stopped weighing and measuring. I stopped calling my sponsor. I stopped, you know, I have never, ever ever talk to someone who said, I was doing absolutely everything you do, and I still picked up the food, ever, in 35 years. I've never had someone say that to me. 
and I'm not saying that my formula is what you have to do, but whatever they were doing that they got abstinent and were abstinent for a week, a month, a year, there's something, either there's something that was missing, which is why they never had the freedom, or there's something that they stopped doing. And, you know, it's not a program of works, but it is a program of action. And, you know, <laughs> it's kind of weird that we use those words. They kind of sound the same, but you know what I mean? It's not like I'm working to get abstinent, but there's actions that I take to stay abstinent. And not, I'm sorry, that's all I got with that. Thank you, Larry Kay. Susan C., your turn. Yeah, thanks. Thanks so much. Big shout out to you, Katie, for your talk and also for being one of the OGs alongside Leah and some of the others who started this meeting 11 years ago. Um, I really get it when you said I had the thought that maybe I made too much of this, maybe I don't need this, when you were taking the, um, the ADHD medication. And uh, while I don't have that experience, I, like you, can have a thought like that, and it's super fleeting. But then, I mean, it's like I know that it's just narrative, it's just falsities. But I also get it when you described how you kind of worked yourself up into a lather this morning, you know, before the talk, and God bless you for taking the action anyway. And I, I relate to that as well, the ability to work myself up into a fever pitch. And so I wondered if you have any thoughts on, um, you know, besides taking the action, but how you break through that narrative. I mean, I get that whether we call it the fourth step or the tenth step, we can look at the dishonesty of it. But I just wanted to hear more in depth, you know, you referenced fight, fight, flight, freeze, when you just get into that state where you're off kilter and how you work with that, which may not be as easy to do as just saying, oh, this is a lie, this thought about food, and moving on. Thanks so much. Well, I think that, you know, because I have a thousand experiences that I did not talk about just because, you know, in 45 minutes talking about the experience of almost 63 years living and 35 years of, of abstinence is, you know, it's hard. But, um, but my, my, uh, one of my children got arrested and um, someone for shoplifting when she was 16 years old and someone um, on, you know, one of my fellows, I called her and she talked to me the entire 40, no, it's like an hour and 15 minutes it took me to drive to the police station to pick her up. And she stayed on the phone with me that entire time. But, you know, that wasn't over that day. <laughs> I mean, I had months and months of going, you know, going to see lawyers and doing community service with her and taking her to these classes and blah, 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 blah. And, you know, during that time, I could have yelled at her and screamed at her and ruined our relationship a thousand times. And I didn't because God carried me through that. You know, I just, um, you know, I think it just comes back down to what I said is, you know, just taking the next right action. 
you know, when I wake up at night and I'm worried about something, um, you know, my, that same child uh, spent the summer in Italy when she was um, 21 and, you know, I didn't know she went to seven different countries while she was in Italy. She traveled around all the time and, you know, I didn't know where she was half the time. And, um, you know, I'd wake up in the middle of the night because I knew it was already day for her. And, you know, I just prayed. So it's like, it, there's just all kinds of different things I use um, through this program when things come up, because it doesn't say if, it says when things will crop up. It's, you know, there's no formula to make me other than human and having a human response to crisis or to frustration. That'll pass. Thank you, Susan C. Jack W., it's your turn. Thank you, Ms. Leah, uh, so much for your service. And, uh, and Ms. Jen, thank you so much for a wonderful um, presentation this morning. I, I don't know if I missed it or not or if you touched on it, but in the bedevilments and in the promises, it talks about personal relationships and fear of people will leave us. I really have struggled all my life with fear and uh, maybe social anxiety. And when I do uh, put myself out there and find a buddy or, you know, say somebody I want to hang with, I'll sabotage it. And uh, so since the pandemic and then some uh, health treatments, I've, just been isolating a lot, but God has, uh, you know, carried me through this health issue and really given me a stronger uh, faith, and I want to work on being around people and having, you know, we don't even have a couple we play cards with, and I was wondering if that's a, a part of the transformation, or is it something you practice, feel the fear, and do it anyway? I was just wondering if you had that experience also. Thank you. Um, yes. I mean, I am, you know, more on the introvert side than being an, I mean, not an introvert. <laughs> no, I'm more of an extrovert than an introvert. Um, and, yes, I, I, you know, especially my husband's ex-wife, like, you know, I can just feel as nervous as I was to do this talk um, not maybe not quite that nervous, but I can feel really nervous to be around her because, um, you know, she's not in a recovery program. She is a negative person and she will jump on anything. And so then I, you know, just feel really nervous to not say something that's going to give her fodder to <laughs> say something to me, you know, and, um, and, you know, that's where the pausing when agitated or doubtful can come in. I mean, we had my um, oldest stepdaughter got married seven years ago. And, you know, there were some really beautiful moments when we all went to pick out her wedding dress. And her mom and I just locked eyes and we both started crying. And it was just this beautiful thing. But then, you know, six months later at the wedding, you know, I just felt like, 
every, I just felt like I was going to fall apart, you know, just being around her. And, um, you know, but, you know, I, it is more of an acting as if and just pausing and just asking God to be with me. And, you know, I think my desire to um, be with people is greater than my uh, fear of doing the wrong thing. And, you know, I've, I've just I don't have to always be talking. I don't have to always be saying something and, and just allowing God to, um, to give me the grace to just listen to people, you know, instead of um, worrying about what I'm going to say. You know, I've just really been, you know, painfully aware of how self-centered I am to be worried about everything I'm doing. It's like everybody's worried about stuff. And so just try to get out of my own way and just not, um, not be so self-centered that I'm uh, worried about every little thing I do. I'll pass. Thanks, Jack. Freya H, star one to unmute. Thank you. This is Freya H in Colorado. Um, thank you so much, Katie, for being willing to share your experience, strength, and hope this morning. And I just really appreciated the, you know, the uh, the honesty and the practicality and um, you know, it's being open about this is this is not easy. You know, this is what this process is like. So, made it very uh, authentic. And my question is, um, you talked about the ninth step promises, and for a long time, I heard those promises in OA meetings totally out of context, and I did not have the connection that oh, these are the result of actually going through the you know the four through nine process, and I thought they were just supposed to materialize in my life just by you know, going to meetings and, you know, calling in my food and stuff. So would, did you have a connection between going through the process and then recognizing and, and finding, wow, these, these promises really are coming true in my life as a result of these steps? So if you want to comment on that, thank you. Yes, well, I was thinking about that this morning, like, okay, or sometime in the last week about, okay, well, when did I realize that they had come true? And, you know, I think that for me, um, they started coming true the minute I put the food down. You know, it didn't mean that if I didn't work the steps, they were going to continue. But, but really, um, you know, I started uh, being able to handle situations that used to baffle me right away because it, it was so much a part of my life that I just caved by whatever everyone else was doing. You know, if everyone else was eating out, then I was eating out. And, of course, I was going to eat what they ate. And, you know, um, and just letting other people dictate how I lived. And, you know, so then I just think it's, it's more in hindsight that you start to realize that these things have come true, that they, you know, this is what's happening now. And, um you know, but, but it's definitely, you have to work the steps. I mean, you, if you have a lingering resentment that you, you know, it's really like eating you alive and you're bitter and angry, then you're not living in the promises. You're not, you know, you haven't completed the work. And so, but I think that God, you know, does give these promises even during that process, because if you felt I mean, I just did not feel miserable the whole time I was working the steps. I've heard people talk about that and, 
you know, that they're just so something uptight or, or, or just feeling their feelings. And that just was not experience, my experience. So I can't, you know, I can't make it up. I can't make myself have the same kind of experiences that other people have had. But again, as I said, you know, I was pretty devastated by the food and, you know, really <laughs> just the idea I was recoiling from it um, very quickly because I, it, it had bit me, you know, it had really bounced back like a boomerang, like um, Bill W. talks about. So I, you know, I was very um, invested in not picking up the food. And it wasn't until a long time later that I realized that God was carrying me through and giving me that grace. I hope that helps. Thank you, Freya. We have time for a few more questions. If you'd like to pose a question, star one to unmute. I need your name, including the first letter. Morizy. Morizy. Felicia S. Felicia S. Angie. Andrea B. Andrea Leslie B. W. And Leslie Andrea W. Angie. Okay, Elaine, I'll put you at the end if we have time. So I have Felicia S. Maura Z. Andrea, Leslie W. And Elaine G. If we have time. Okay, Felicia, go ahead with your question, please. Hi, Katie. Thank you so much for your talk, and thank you to all who do service at this meeting. My question is quick and simple. Can you walk us through what your current routine, spiritual routine, morning and evening is, how you best connect uh, with God and find that spiritual voice? Thank you. Okay. Um, I think someone asks that every time on Sunday. <laughs> There's always someone who asks that question. Um Yes. Yeah, so what I do is when I get up, I, I recorded myself, someone else gave this idea, I don't remember who it was, um, to record themselves reading um, the On Awakening reading from the big book. Um, so that's about three minutes. I listen to that. And um, then I have um, devotionals that I do from the, um, you know, religion of my choice. And I listen to um, it's about a two or three minute. Um, so I do about 10 minutes of that. And then, um, as I mentioned, I'm doing these, um, uh, devotion, these, um, meditations. So I do a meditation that's 12 to 15 minutes. And this is not all in a row. This is throughout my morning. Um, I, I usually listen to the meditations on my way to work. Um, and then I pray with my sponsor every day and I pray throughout the day. And in the evening I do an 11 step review on, um, an app and I send that to a fellow and I have been, um, listening to the evening meditation as well. So that's my practice. Thank you, Felicia. Maura Z, your turn. Thank you, Leah, for your service. Katie, thank you so very much for your for your share. It was I really appreciate your vulnerability and your honesty. I really do. Um 
My question is about sponsoring and specifically about sponsoring when your sponsee has gone through all 12 steps and they are now sponsoring. I'm wondering how often do you connect with those sponsees? Yes, I talk to my sponsor every day and I talk to my sponsees every day because I have accountability with my food and so do they. And so we talk every day and, you know, a lot of times they have questions about stuff that's going on with their sponsees and how to respond. And then, um, or just, you know, all of these hundreds of things that I've talked about today that people that I've gone through, you know, a sponsor has been there to walk, walk through these things with me. And so, you know, we continue to do step work and we continue to, um, to just keep in touch. And, you know, I have sponsees with three months of abstinence up to decades. So I don't sponsor just one or two people. Thank you, Morizy. Thank you, Morizy, for your question. Andrea, your turn. Thank you so much for your service. Um, It's Andrea B. in New York. And, Katie, thank you for your um, share. Really powerful. Here's my question. Um, Can you speak on the evolution of your relationship with your higher power over the course of your recovery? That's it. Okay, well, when I came in, I thought that I knew my higher power. I had a relationship with God, but I thought that God had no interest in my food issue, my food problem. And I had asked, you know, multiple times to, um, you know, for help at, you know, my religion of my choice. And, you know, they were always willing to help, but it just, it just never stuck. And so, you know, through working the steps and getting a connection with God and um, eventually, you know, just wanting to, I mean, the book encourages us to go to the religion of our choice. So I started doing that more. And, um, and after a year and a half, I actually decided to go to a discipleship training school and became a missionary. So I, you know, and there I had an hour of quiet time every day and we had worship, you know, just all of this very in-depth study and all that. And so, you know, that's just been the foundation. And then um, I've just stayed in contact with, uh, you know, with people who are on the same spiritual path as me, and, you know, through working this program, I mean, I, I'm in touch with people all the time who are seeking and who are um, learning. And, you know, now we're going to a different church and I'm very involved in the prayer ministry. So it just keeps growing. You know, it's not something that, you know, goes on the back burner and then, you know, it's like, well, who needs that anymore? You know, I'm fine. I'm good now. Um, it's you know, just keeps developing. So that's, I'll pass. 
Thank you, Andrea B., for your question. Looks like our final question this morning will come from Leslie W. Go ahead, Leslie. Okay. Thanks, Leah. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. And thank you, Katie, for a powerful testimony. Um, my question is relating to the comment that you made about your husband's ex-wife and how she was intent on making both of your lives miserable and that you let her. Um, And also your comments about how others, you also let others dictate for a long time the way that you should live your life. So those two comments, I would love to hear more about how um, those those issues right there is what I want to hear more um, about in terms of how does your step work enable you to release um, the hold that people had over you in your life? So if you could just talk about that, that I'd appreciate it. Thanks. Well, one thing is, um, I mean, I did a lot of writing about it and a lot of um, <clears throat> surrender, you know, with my husband's ex-wife, um, what happened was I, you know, kind of came to the end of myself when I really screamed at her one day and had to make amends. And um, I wrote her a note. Um, that was what we decided was the best thing to do because after, because then the next thing that I did was I stopped being the one to communicate with her about stuff that was going on with the children, you know, so I made it, so I was able to make it that it's just, well, I let my husband have the responsibility that was, was already his and stopped trying to do it for him. And, um, but I also did a lot of prayer and praying for her the way the big book talks about praying for someone. And then this other practice that I have learned um, to pray for someone, and I can explain that to you off the line, um, to pray for someone and for seven days and, or to just, to write about it for seven days. And then, um, it just, it's, you know, it's just amazing how the person just becomes human and they lose that power over me that I just see them as another leveling it's just very level that they're not below me and they're not above me and i'm just so then when i become agitated or doubtful you know later on because it's not you know this perfect thing then i'm able to um it comes back back very quickly oh yes they're just another human being and they have a right to their opinion but they are not god and they are not going to, I don't have to do what they say, and I don't have to believe what they say about me. Is it true? Is it, is there anything true to what's going on? And if, you know, if not, if, if I can't see anything true about it, if I can't see any action that I need to take, then I'm very able to quickly let it go because I see my own insanity of giving them that power in my life. I'll pass
Thank you, Leslie W. Thanks to all who posed questions this morning. And, of course, thank you, Katie, for this inspiring, authentic, and touching presentation this morning about living life in the promises. Thank you. The share ID for today, 20,405. That's 20405. And we will now close the meeting from page 164. It's in a chapter entitled, A Vision for You. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously, you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right, and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is a great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit. And you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.